Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to His Word being preached. I want you guys to quickly turn to one another um, in two groups of two again, as you, as you were before. And I just want you to discuss uh, a quick question. Uh, for some of you, this question is going to be very easy to answer. For some, maybe a bit more tricky. Um, if you had to summarize Jesus' message while he was on earth, if you had to summarize his message while, while he was uh, on earth, what, what, how would you summarize it? Just quickly turn to each other and discuss. In one sentence. If you had to summarize it in one sentence. Okay, let, let, me, let me get some feedback. Um, what do you guys think? What, how, how would you summarize Jesus' message in one sentence if you had to, if you had to uh, summarize it? Yes. To fish for men? Yeah, that's a nice short sentence. Um, Mihi. <laughs> what do you say? Okay, to love God, remain in God, and love your neighbor. Yes? <laughs> Say again to reconcile. To reconcile us with God. Okay, okay. Anyone else have a different? He's come to set the captives free. Under free salvation as a result of perfect love. The Father is good. God is love and God is just. Yes, Beck. Okay. Well, all of what you're saying is right and our aspects of what Jesus... But how did Jesus himself summarize his ministry? <laughs> Can you just put up the scriptures? There we go. And everything that you're saying... <laughs> everything that you guys said was right. And that there are aspects. But when Jesus himself summarizes his ministry, um, it says in, in Matthew 4 verse 17, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, notice there it says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, that's what he began to do, and he didn't stop. That's what he preached all the way through. And everything else that he says, and everything else that the Bible says about Jesus' ministry, should be seen in the context of this summarizing message of what Jesus said. Now, that's all good and well, you might say, but... You know, what is the kingdom? <laughs> I mean, when, when we think of kingdom, you know, kingdom is not something that we think of, or, you know, king, monarchy, kingdom is not something that we think of that often. You know, we, you know, pictures of, you know, the British royalty might sort of come up in our heads. Uh, but generally, especially in our context, you know, kingdom doesn't have necessarily such a positive connotation, does it? I mean, you think of Swaziland, 
and <laughs> everything going on there, you know, in the kingdom of Swaziland or the mountain kingdom of Lesotho. Um, not everything is positive, you know. And, and there are very few kingdoms, genuine kingdoms, still left on planet Earth. Most of it is either dictatorship or democracy or, or whatever else. So, I mean, kingdom is not something that, that we relate to all that well. And then there's another question. Um, it says here, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But on other places, especially in the other Gospels, it talks about the kingdom of God, which is at hand. Now, is there a difference? What's the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God? Is there a difference? Who, who says there's a difference? Who says there's not a difference? <laughs> okay, who's just going to sit on the wire? <laughs> sit on the fence. Sit on the fence with this one. <laughs> it's like, we know you, Pastor. You asked three questions, you know. <laughs> no, we're going to sit on the fence on this one. Um, l- let me maybe just explain that, and, and maybe you can just quickly bring up the next um, scriptures. Um, just bring up the next one. There we go. Uh, here I just have two uh, passages, the same passage basically, one from Matthew's Gospel, the first one, and the other one from Mark's Gospel. And in Matthew's Gospel it says in, in Matthew 19, verse 23 and 24, and Jesus said to the disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. So he uses kingdom of heaven there. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So he uses both kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. But Matthew only about five times uses kingdom of God. The rest of the times he uses kingdom of heaven. Okay? But look at what Mark was one of Matthew's sources. So when Matthew was writing his gospel, he had a copy of Mark next to him. I mean, you can go and check the... Sometimes he just almost verbatim copies... Mark, you know, maybe just correcting his grammar a little bit <laughs> here and there. So this is the passage where he got that from. It says, and Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So both times he uses kingdom of God, where once Matthew uses kingdom of heaven. So you can see they're exactly the same. Matthew only keeps, the reason why Matthew translated kingdom of heaven is because Matthew is a Jew writing to a mostly Jewish audience. Now, Jews are very careful of saying the word God because it says you must use the name of the Lord your God in vain. So Jews were very serious about that. So they'd add all kinds of what they call circumlocution, you know, roundabout ways of speaking of God. So instead of speaking of of God, they will, even today, they they won't say, um, and God said, they'll say, Hashem said. Hashem means the name. So to avoid saying God or, or the name of God, which is um, Yahweh, they will say Hashem, the name. Now, he's doing exactly the same. Because he's writing for a Jewish audience, he's trying a, finding a roundabout way to speak about the kingdom of God. But instead of saying the kingdom of God, he, re- he replaces the word God with heaven, which is the same thing. Okay, so kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven is uh, the same way. Kingdom of heaven is just... Matthew's preferred way, a Jewish way of speaking of the kingdom of God. Now, um, all of us long for just rule. We, we long to be part of, we long to be, to be able to submit under just rulership. And, and we don't always realize that until we don't have just rulership. 
<laughs> right? <laughs> when you have corrupt, corrupt rulership or, or unjust rulership, then all of a sudden you realize, no, actually, you know, I'd like something better. I mean, just um, think back. Um, okay, I see most of the, the black African gen- ladies and gentlemen are quite young. So you, were any of you <laughs> born before apartheid ended? <laughs> but if you were, you'd know, or your parents would know. That was an unjust rulership, and that was terrible. That was really horrible, being under that oppressive rule. Your parents will tell you, your grandparents will tell you. Terrible, okay? Um, as a black person to live under apartheid, okay? Today, uh, and the irony is you have unjust rule under apartheid, and the ANC took over. Started off pretty well, but, you know, they're sort of, you know, not doing so well anymore. And pretty much now, I mean, if you go and check... I checked the figures for 2015, and you had more than 25 billion rand of taxpayers' money misspent. Now, how much do you think you can do? That's in one year. How much do you think you can do? How many lives do you think you can change with 25 billion rand plus a year? And it's getting more every year almost. You, how many lives can you change? Many lives. How many houses can you build? How many jobs can you create if that money is stewarded well and spent well? So, once again, you know, you have unjust rulership. Um, and, you know, so often people will look and say, okay, well, we must look for the next political party, the EFF or the DA. But, I mean, who's to say they're going to be better? I mean, I'm, I'm not saying, you know, continue voting as you're voting, but I'm saying, let's be honest. You know, if, if the National Party was unjust and, and they were replaced by the ANC and the ANC seems to be also going the wrong direction, I mean, that is the way of man. That is the way of human government and rulership. Man is fallen. And we, as things get worse, we realize we don't want this. We want something better. We need something better. People suffer when there's bad government. People suffer when there's bad rule. Um, and... Uh, President Jacob Zuma is notorious for saying that the ANC will rule until Jesus comes, you know. And, and, and that makes you want to say, come, Lord Jesus, come. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but but in, a, in a sense, tragically, I w- almost want to say he's almost right in the sense that the ANC or people like the ANC will rule until Jesus comes. The reality is, it's only when Jesus comes back that we'll have just, really just government, really just rulership. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't try for better, you know. Um, the pattern seems to be, you know, government, get, people get, get into government, get power, power corrupts, things go bad, then they get replaced because people vote for someone else or some, something happens. Uh, the someone else gets in power, gets corrupted by power, things go worse. So we just need to change our vote regularly, you know. Then we sort of <laughs> at least keep things sane until Jesus comes. But the reality is um, we'll, we'll be stuck with, with some form of unjust rulership until Jesus comes. And that's why in, in, in Matthew 4, verse 23, it talks about... Um, let me just read that. Um, and, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom 
and healing the, every disease and every afflic- affliction among people. The gospel. You know what the word gospel means? Good news, right? Good news. In other words, Jesus' rule, the kingdom of God, is good news. He proclaims the good news that his rule is now available as an alternative. And that is good news. As we're going to see more and more throughout this morning, it really is good news because his rule is perfect. His rule is better. His rule is the rule that we're actually longing for all along. His rule, the kingdom of God. It's good news that God's going to rule and that um, fallen human beings are not going to rule. Um, then I just want to read that, that passage quickly that, that we're going to base the sermon on. Matthew 6, um, verse 9 and 10. I started a couple of weeks ago and, and, and shared on this in the morning service. And was it last week or the week before in the um, Santon service, I, I shared on um, Our Father in Heaven, hallowed be your name. So the whole thing of worship. So if you want to catch up, you know, you can just go and download the podcast or go to the website and listen to that. So it says in verse 9 and 10, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And many people will use the Our Father as sort of a a prayer that you say during um, sort of assembly period at school or that the family says together. Or, or stuff like that. But clearly that's not how it was intended. Jesus doesn't say, pray this prayer or pray these words. What does he say? He says, pray in this way. This, this way is, is therefore how you should pray. In other words, the Our Father is just a sort of a skeleton. A skeleton of a prayer. Each of the phrases is a heading that we in our prayer time must fill in ourselves. The first thing is you address God as Father. Our Father in heaven. Okay, who God is and how we relate to Him. Then, hallowed be your name, worship. And then under that, you fill in the worship. Um, honoring God's name as holy. And then the, the second one is, your kingdom come. Okay, but what does that mean? That's what we're going to ask. And then it says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And just a question, that phrase, on earth as it is in heaven, does it only modify your will be done? Or is it, Hallowed be your name on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Which one of the two is it? Okay. Now, um, I, I, I sort of went into this and sort of looked at the evidence, because that's what you do. You look at the text, see what does the text say. Um, uh, and it seems to me that it's actually the first option, that on earth as it is in heaven, only modifies your will be done. Um, and I'll tell you why I say so. Because it says, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It doesn't say, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's no and. So that's the first thing grammatically that tells me it's probably just the last one. So it's probably your kingdom come, period, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then the second thing that that sort of shows me it's probably that, is if you go and look at the equivalent prayer in Luke, chapter 11, and just bring up that slide quickly in, in Luke, chapter 11, uh, look at what it says. Luke has sort of a shortened version. It says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us this day of daily bread. So, 
He has sort of a condensed version of the so-called Our Father. And when he leaves out your will be done, he also leaves out on earth as it is in heaven. And he has your kingdom come without on earth as it is in heaven. Okay? Which means, I mean, I know there's a, a sort of a, a popular teaching going around um, where people say, instead of your kingdom come, let heaven come. We even sing that in some of our songs. But clearly that's not really what Jesus means here. Okay? I'm not saying that's entirely wrong, but the kingdom is not just heaven coming to earth. It's something different from heaven coming to earth, the kingdom coming. Does that make sense? Okay, now I'm, I'm worrying some of you because you're saying, okay, now you're start, starting to mess with my idea of what the kingdom is. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Good. I want to mess a little bit with what your idea of what the kingdom is. Um, because I found that for me, before I actually studied this and studied God's word, I had a very fuzzy idea of what the kingdom of God was, which is actually quite shocking if the summary, the essence of Jesus' message is repent for the kingdom of uh, heaven is at hand, and I can't even explain to someone properly what the kingdom of heaven is, you know. How do I understand Jesus' message, his entire earthly message? So let's look at that. So we're going to look at it just under three headings. Your kingdom come, three words, so three headings. <laughs> your kingdom come, okay, what is the nature of the kingdom? Your kingdom come, your kingdom means that there are other kingdoms, so the conflict of the kingdom. Your kingdom come. The coming of the kingdom. What does it mean that the kingdom comes? So we're just quickly going to look at that. The nature of the kingdom, the conflict of the kingdom, and the coming of the kingdom. Okay, so God's kingdom, uh, just bring up those two verses in Psalms. God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Now, now Psalms were written between a thousand or even earlier than that. Moses wrote the first Psalm. Psalm 90 was written by Moses. But most of them were written between a thousand and a few hundred before Christ, over a period of a few hundred years by different people. Um, so they many hundreds of years before Jesus' earthly ministry. And listen to what, what they say. Psalm 145 verse 13 says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion um, endures throughout all generations. God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. It has always existed. It will always exist. So, so I mean, what does it even mean when Jesus says, Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, as though it's now only coming? When... Clearly, the Old Testament says it's always been there and it will always be there. Okay? Um, it's an everlasting kingdom. And secondly, Psalm 103 verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. It already rules over all. When Psalm three was, was, 103 was written, it was already ruling over all. You know, why does it need to come? What's going on here? You see, there, there are two senses in which you can use the phrase, the kingdom of God. The one is this, God's sovereign rule over everyone and everything that has always been and that will always be. And that is the kingdom of God spoken of there in the Psalms. But when it speaks about, when Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, he's speaking about something different. You see, mankind was created to rule and to be ruled. God blessed them and, um, and said, be fruitful and multiply, rule over everything that I've created as my representatives. So man was created both to rule and to be ruled. Okay? And in, in Daniel 2, verse 44 and 45, it says, and in, now let me just give you the context. 
King Nebuchadnezzar has this famous dream of this big statue with a head of gold, with shoulders and arms uh, and chest of silver, with a with a with the sort of um, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and then feet of iron mixed with clay. Okay, and then what happens is a rock breaks out of a mountain and starts rolling down. A rock, with it says broken out without, or cut out without ha- human hands. And it starts rolling down and starts crushing and pulverizing this, this statue in the vision. Okay? Now listen to this. It says in Daniel 2, verse 44 and 45, in the, in the days of those kings, so, so each of the, the different metals and so on represents a different kingdom. The Babylonian kingdom, the head, the, um, was it the Syrian kingdom, the... Um, Medes and the Persians, and eventually the Romans, the, the, the metal and the metal mixed with, with clay. He said, in the day of those kings, the kings of the Roman Empire, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand. And that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall um, be after this. Notice it says, in the time of those kings, in the time of the Roman Empire. So there's going to come a time, even though God is king, sovereignly ruling the universe over all and giving the kingdoms of men to whom he pleases, according to Daniel chapter 4. There'll come a time when a kingdom will break out. And the difference is that'll be the so-called messianic kingdom. In other words, the, the kingdom of God that is ruled by a man, the man Jesus Christ, as we're going to see. Where God fulfills his purpose for man, that man must rule the earth, but through a specific man, through a specific man. So that's sort of the, the background of the, of the kingdom of God. Um, All the kingdoms in Daniel's vision, whether it was the gold, silver, bronze, metal, or the rock of the mountain, all those things representing kingdoms were ruled by men. And that's the difference with this kingdom of God. So, what is the kingdom of God? Kingdom can mean one of two things. Kingdom can mean a realm, the kingdom of Great Britain, the kingdom of Swaziland, sort of a realm, a territory, that can be a kingdom. But it can also mean a reign. It can also mean uh, the rule of a king. Now, in this case, it means, I think, the rule of a king. In Daniel 2, verse 35, it says that stone or that rock uh, that struck the image became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. It became a great mountain, that rock, after destroying the, the, the statue representing the kingdoms of this world, it became a great mountain, a huge mountain that filled the whole earth. In other words, this rock which represents the kingdom is an expanding rock. It's an expanding kingdom that eventually fills the whole earth. In other words, it's not just a territory. It's a reign that expands across the whole earth. And we see that in, in Jesus' teaching as well. In Matthew, a lot of Jesus' parables in Matthew are kingdom parables, where he says, and the kingdom of God is like... So here we have a few. Matthew 13, verse 31 says, 
He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of seeds, but when it has grown up, and it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in the branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So the picture there in both parables is the kingdom of God starts small, like a mustard seed, like a little uh, piece of leaven. But like the mustard seed grows into a big tree, so the kingdom of God, which starts small, grows into a big kingdom, the biggest kingdom. The little piece of leaven is put into three measures of, of flour. But what does leaven do? It spreads. It spreads. The kingdom of God is like that. It spreads. In other words, the kingdom of God is not a realm. It is the, it's, it's a rain that spreads like leaven, that spreads eventually across the whole earth. And when that was said, here's the freaky thing. When that was said, Jesus was saying it in a little, tiny, Middle Eastern country called Israel, which was nowhere, which was not powerful, which was not rich, which was actually persecuted. And he was saying it to a few dozen or a few hundred followers who after that were not only persecuted by the religion which they came from, Judaism, but by the Roman Empire on a scale that has never been seen before. More Bibles have been burned than any other book in the history of mankind. And yet, look where we are now. In a world of going on 7 billion people, roughly a third call on the name of Christ. Small beginning, massive impact. You would have never said that would be possible if you looked at the beginning. You would have said, no, no. This little piece of leaven, no, it can't spread like that. But it has. It has. Um, Then, another thing that's a bit confusing to people about the kingdom is, on the one hand, Jesus says in scriptures like um, Matthew 4, verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's at hand, which makes it sound like it's already sort of here in, in a certain sense. But then in other scriptures, like the one we're looking at now in Matthew 6, he says, pray your kingdom come. Well, if it's already here, why must it still come? Why must we still pray for it to come? Isn't that a bit confusing? And you see that all the time. Every scripture, I mean, there are dozens of them about the kingdom. Some of them seem to say the kingdom's already here. Others say the kingdom's not yet. So is it already or not yet? Well, it's both. <laughs> it's both already and not yet. It's already and not yet. Because the kingdom has already been inaugurated with Jesus' coming, but it's, going to, it's not yet consummated. It's going to be consummated with his second coming. Then the kingdom will fully come. It has already partially come, been inaugurated, but one day it will fully come and cover the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. Um, one example of that is I'm told that in North Africa, I mean, you have the Nile River, which is the longest river in the world. And if you go from its source, I think it's somewhere in Ethiopia, in the mountains of Ethiopia, and you follow the Nile River all the way to the Mediterranean, Roughly a hundred kilometers before you hit the Mediterranean, the water of the Nile is already salt. And it's the same. The kingdom of heaven has already come. The saltiness (laughs) 
of the kingdom is already here, even before we get to the very end. Okay? Here's another example. Um, Oscar Kuhlmann, who's a well-known theologian, used this example. In the Second World War, uh, Hitler had his forces, and he had two generals. I remember one was Rommel. I can't remember the German guy's name. But both of them were excellent generals, strategically brilliant and so on. And, and they were fighting against the Allied forces. And they said to, to Hitler, if the Allies manage to land in Europe and, and, and form a beachhead, you know, a stronghold, if they get a foothold in Europe, the war's over. We must stop them from landing in Europe. Because if they land in Europe, it's finished. So you had that massive day and all the stuff, you know, all the secrecy around it and, and the false sort of dates of invasion, you know, to sort of and, uh, uh, throw off the disinformation, to throw off the, the German forces, forces of, the, of the Third Reich. And eventually the invasion came. And they had different, these two generals had different ideas of how this invasion should be stopped and how the Allied forces must be prevented from getting a foothold in Europe, from, from establishing a beachhead. But they agreed on the fact that if they don't manage to prevent the Allies from forming a beachhead, the war was basically over, and they would lose. And we know what happened in the end. In, in, in uh, D-Day, the Allies invaded, and at great, great cost of life, they managed to get a foothold, to establish a beachhead in Europe. And effectively, the war was over. It took a couple more years for, you know, for VE Day to actually come the final victory. But D-Day had already basically settled the outcome of the war. A couple of years later, there was VE Day in which Europe was fully taken back. Now, the kingdom of God is like that. Jesus' first coming, where the kingdom is already inaugurated, is D-Day, where Jesus got a foothold on planet Earth, where he established a beachhead. And the war is basically over. The enemy knows that. <laughs> He's already lost He's just waiting for the final victory to sort of be played out. But, in, but he's already lost. And that's why the kingdom has already come, D-Day, but it's not yet fully come, V-E-Day. The, the, the victory that is inevitable has not yet been fully played out. That's why it's already and not yet. Um, so, when we're praying about the kingdom, when we say your kingdom come, we're praying for what is not yet to become already, in a sense. We're praying for what is not yet to become already. We're praying for this inevitable victory to be played out on the stage of history. So that's the nature of the kingdom. The conflict of the kingdom, it says your kingdom come. So your kingdom implies that there are other kingdoms. Um, and this means that for God's kingdom to advance, some other kingdom needs to retreat. Just like for the Allied forces to advance, the German forces had to retreat. For God's kingdom to win, some other kingdom is going to have to lose. And that, just like with the Second World War, that's not going to happen easily. The Germans didn't give up ground easily. They tried to fight for every bit of ground. And God's enemies will fight for their ground as well. They won't give up that ground easily, even though they will inevitably lose. Now, the first alternative kingdom 
is found in the phrase, um, you know, why must we pray, why, not, why must we repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Why does Jesus say repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Because, let me put it this way, there's an old saying, before you can pray, thy kingdom come, you must first pray, my kingdom go. Before you can pray, thy kingdom come, you must first pray, my kingdom go. And that, that's what repentance is. Repentance is saying, my kingdom go. So when Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven, is at hand, he's saying, let your kingdom go so the kingdom of God can come. Because the reality is that all of us want to rule ourselves. All of us want our way in our lives. That's our natural fallen human wiring. But before we can say, thy kingdom come, we must say, my kingdom go. Now, I just want to read you a passage in Matthew 5, verse 20. It says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we don't always realize what a profound scripture that is, what a profound passage that is. Um, it links, it says firstly that you must enter the kingdom. Okay, the kingdom is something that you must enter. And the way to enter it is linked somehow with righteousness. You need righteousness. Righteousness is the thing that allows you to enter the kingdom. But Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you get two kinds of people who do not repent. In other words, do not say, my kingdom go. Okay? The first group of people are irreligious people. People who are sort of dismissive of religion and not even trying to be righteous. In other words, they try and rule themselves through the wrong that they do, through sinfulness. They don't have any righteousness. They don't even try to have any righteousness. Irreligious people. Okay? But irreligious people do that so that they can rule themselves. I want to do what I want to. And they'll say stuff like in Milton's uh, Paradise Lost, I'd rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. Have you ever heard that? <laughs> I think many of us have heard that. In other words, irreligion is just a way of trying to rule yourself. Make sure that you don't have to repent so that the kingdom of God, God's rule doesn't come in your life. Okay? So that's the one way of not repenting. That's the one way of maintaining rule of your own life, is by being irreligious. But what Jesus shows us in this passage is that there's another way of failing to repent. There's another way of trying to make sure you can rule yourself. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's the problem. The scribes and the Pharisees were the most meticulous, pedantic, careful observers of the law you can imagine. It says they tithed on mint and, uh, and anise and cumin. In other words, they had like a mint plant. They'd go like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine for me and one for God. They were like very careful, very careful. They were as righteous and careful in obeying the law as people have ever been in the history of obeying the law. And you know what Jesus says? <laughs> Unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you'll never enter the kingdom. 
In other words, what they're doing, as careful and, 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 um, and committed and zealous as they are to keep the law, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. Here's the problem. All of our righteousness, none of our righteousness is good enough. And that's what the Pharisees didn't realize. You see, where irreligious people fail to repent of their sins, religious people fail to repent of their righteousness. Boom, (laughs) right? (laughs) That's a punch in the gut. Oh no, I thought I could actually be good enough and do well enough to actually merit entering the kingdom. And what Jesus says here is the best of what you can do, the best of your righteousness is not enough, will never be enough. You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven like that. You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven like that. Now, I just want to read you a little testimony of um, sort of a a man who, in in my opinion, um, illustrates this very nicely. It's a guy called Nathan Cole, and he lived during the time when George Whitfield came to America. George Whitfield was a very famous um, evangelical Anglican preacher. Um, him and John Wesley were sort of contemporaries, and they turned the known world upside down, those two. I mean, <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of thousands of... They were like the, the mass evangelists of their time. They were amazing guys who really did... I mean, God used them so powerfully. And um, listen to what, what he says. I'm just going to read a, a, sh- a short um, sort of portion. Um, it says, when I saw Mr. Whitfield come up, uh, to scaf- uh, come up the scaffold, uh, he looked almost angelic, a young, slim, slender, young, uh, a young youth before some thousands of people with a bold, undaunted countenance, and my, and my hearing how God was with him everywhere he came along, it solemnized my mind and put me into a trembling fear before he began to preach. For he looked as if he was clothed with the authority of the great God, and a sweet solemnity uh, sat upon his, bro- uh, upon his brow. And my, hear- uh, and my hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. By God's blessing, my old foundations were broken up, and I saw that my righteousness could not save me. Hear what he's saying. You see, that the, on the one hand, you have irreligious people who don't repent of their sins. But on the other hand, you have religious people who don't repent of their righteousness. And they still think that their righteousness can get them to heaven. Their good works, their coming to church, their praying, they're doing all of the right things. And, and, and all of those things are right. But none of those things by themselves can get you to heaven. They are your righteousness. And there are so many Christians who come to church so regularly, but who end up being like Pharisees because they've repented of their sins, but they've never repented of their righteousness. Nathan Cole goes on, and he says, One day, as we went out into the field to work, when I went out of my door, I fell into a prayer and continued so until I came to the place of my work, and then I had a glorious sight, a vision. It seemed as if I really saw the gate of heaven by an eye, by an eye of faith, 
and the way of sinners to get to heaven by Jesus Christ. As, uh, as plain as ever I saw anything with my bodily eyes in my life, I looked around to see if I could see any poor creature. I thought that I could almost point and show them the straight way to heaven by Jesus Christ. I saw that Free, I saw what free grace was. I saw how stubborn and willful man was. I saw it was nothing but accepting, uh, accepting of Christ's righteousness. And the match was made. I was, and I saw I was saved by Christ. Here I thought I had, been, I had the sealings of the Holy Ghost. And here I had evidence clear. Uh, what I saw here was unspeakable. Can you see what happened? <laughs> he made that transition of not only being an irreligious person who repented of his sinfulness and be first becoming a religious person, a Pharisee, who even though he repented of his sinfulness, still clung to his righteousness. But then he, God brought him to a place where he even repented of his own righteousness because he realized that can't save me. And he received Christ's righteousness. Christ's righteousness. Um, let me read you the next scripture in, in, in Matthew 6, verse 33, a well-known scripture. But it, say, it says, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. How do you enter the kingdom of God? You can try by your own righteousness, but I can guarantee you, scripture is very clear, your own righteousness will never be good enough. Because it's not good enough to keep some of the laws some of the time, or even most of the laws most of the time. You need to keep all of the laws all of the time, and none of us can do that. And not only do you need to keep all of the laws all of the time, Jesus says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that if you've lusted in your heart after a woman, you've already committed adultery. So it's not enough to keep all of the laws all of the time on the outside. You've got to keep them on the inside, in your heart, in your motives, and none of us do that. None of us are so perfect. In other words, none of us have a righteousness that we can present to God and say, based on this, I want to enter your kingdom. In other words, you enter the kingdom not when you come and present your good enough track record. That's not when you're allowed in. You enter the kingdom when you come and present the track record of another on your behalf. His righteousness. Christ's righteousness, as Nathan Cole discovered. Um, then in Matthew 13, verse 44 and uh, 46, it says, um, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has, and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Two parables that once again say the same thing. What do they say? When you have, it says firstly in, in, in 633, seek the kingdom first, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Everything else you're searching for, you will find when you find the kingdom. If you search for happiness, you search for contentment, you search for whatever else, you will not find it unless in a lasting way unless you find the kingdom. But when you're searching, you're like that guy searching for, for pearls. When you find that pearl of great price, that ultimate pearl, 
you will know that you are ready when you are ready to sell everything you have to buy that. When you find the kingdom, in a sense, you'll be ready to sell everything you have to buy into the kingdom, to invest all that you have in the kingdom. You'll disinvest from everything else to invest in the kingdom. You'll sell everything else you have to buy into the kingdom and surrender everything to the kingdom. You'll put all your eggs in one basket, as it were. Um, Now, in... Matthew 12, verse 22 to 28, it it shows us a few interesting things about the kingdom. Maybe I should just sort of, before I go on, just sort of make sure you get this point. Matthew 18, verse 1 to 4, Jesus says, Unless you become like a little child, humble, trusting like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom. A little child owns nothing has nothing to offer. And Jesus says, unless we become like that, we cannot enter the kingdom. In other words, in order to enter the kingdom, all you need is need. In order to enter the kingdom, all you need is need. You need to give up your own sinfulness, but also your own righteousness, and receive from Jesus His righteousness. You can do many right things and good things once you've entered the kingdom. But none of those right and good things will help you to enter the kingdom. It's only by Jesus and what he did that you can enter the kingdom. And we fight. Our our humanness fights against that. But, 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 you know, our pride of, I want to do it. I want to save myself. I want to accomplish it. It fights against that. It, It rebels against that. Um, but not only do our, uh, uh, you know, it's not only us and our kingdom that's the problem. Um, Matthew 12, verse 22 to 28 says, uh, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. Amazing miracle. Uh, verse 23 says, And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? The son of David was the Messiah, the human Messiah who would rule the kingdom of God, the Messianic kingdom. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons, knowing their thoughts. Okay, so Jesus flowed in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, like prophetically he knew their thoughts. Um, Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Notice Satan has a kingdom. Okay? Satan has a kingdom. Important point. Verse 27. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Notice here, Jesus contrasts two kingdoms, the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. And in reality, even if you're trying to rule yourself, you're in one of those two kingdoms. You're either in the kingdom of Satan or you're in the kingdom of God. There's no middle ground. There's no demilitarized zone. Those are the two kingdoms, and you're either in one. If you're not in one, then you're in the other. 
And when we pray, let your kingdom come, we are praying for people to move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. We're praying for that transition uh, to happen. Now, note this. Let's talk about the coming of the kingdom. Spoke about the conflict of the kingdom, the nature of the kingdom, conflict of the kingdom. Let's speak about the coming of the kingdom. How does that kingdom come? How does God's kingdom advance? Um, Firstly, note that you can experience the benefits of the kingdom and get into contact with the kingdom without the kingdom coming in your life or without you entering the kingdom. Let me just read you um, one, one passage in Luke chapter 10. And this is where I find probably the, the greatest misconception about the kingdom uh, is found amongst Christians. Verse 9 to 12. It says, heal the sick. Jesus sending out his disciples um, basically to go and announce the kingdom. It says, heal the sick in it, in the town that you come to. Say to, to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. However, uh, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, uh, go into the streets and say, Even the dust of our town that clings to your feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day, the day of judgment for Sodom than for that town. Here's the, the point I'm trying to make. Jesus sends his disciples into town. They go and do miracles. They go and preach the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. They heal the sick. They drive out demons, all that kind of stuff. And Jesus says to them, you know, if people don't receive you, if people don't receive your message and so on, say to them, we shake off the dust from our shoes against you. Yet know that the kingdom of God has come near you. In other words, the kingdom of God has come near you, but it's benefited you nothing. When the Bible says the kingdom of God has come near, it doesn't mean that people have entered the kingdom. You can experience the benefits of the kingdom. You can see the miracles of the kingdom. You can hear the message of the kingdom. But that doesn't mean the kingdom has come in your life. So when has the kingdom come in your life? When has the kingdom come in your life? Um, Let's look at what Matthew 12 says. uh, Jesus says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. And then he says, But if I cast out... If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, many people look at that scripture and say, ah, you know, exorcism, miracles. When that happens, the kingdom has come. Now, we just read that even if that happens and people see that, that doesn't necessarily mean the kingdom has come in their life. The kingdom has come near them, but that doesn't mean they've entered the kingdom. It's not exorcism per se that is a sign of the kingdom coming. Look carefully what it says. It says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons, in other words, your disciples cast them out? In other words, the disciples of the Pharisees were also doing exorcism. They were also casting out demons. So he's comparing their casting out demons, and he doesn't say, but if I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come near you. He says, if by the Spirit... Of God, I cast out demons. Then the kingdom of God has come near you. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, what's the difference here? The difference is the spirit. You, 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 let me summarize this. The presence of the spirit is the presence of the kingdom. 
the presence of the Spirit is the presence of the kingdom. And Jesus could say, the kingdom of God is near you. It's here. It's at hand. Because he had the Spirit. Remember? When he was baptized, the heavens tore open. The Spirit of God came down upon him in, in bodily form like a dove. And the voice said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. He had the Spirit. And that's why wherever he was, the kingdom was. The presence of the Spirit is the presence of the kingdom. So, in a very real sense, we can say that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the already in the already not yet of the kingdom. The already is the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And when we pray, let your kingdom come, effectively, what are we praying for? We're praying for the Holy Spirit to come into people's lives through Jesus Christ, through the gospel of the kingdom. That's what we're praying for. We're praying for the presence of the Holy Spirit to come into their lives. Because the Holy Spirit is the presence of the kingdom. One um, author put it this way. He said, um, Jesus went and sat on his throne at the Father's right hand, and he poured out the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2, verse 33, as the executive power of his kingdom. How does Jesus rule his kingdom on earth when he's in heaven? Through his Holy Spirit. Through his Holy Spirit. So, the, the Holy Spirit is the presence of the kingdom. Um, now, just in closing, Matthew 27, verse 11 and 35, um, and a few other verses, it says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, that's Pilate, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he said, You, you, you have said so. And in verse 37 it says, And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Jesus was crucified for being a king. Jesus was crucified for being a king. In Matthew 27, verse 27 to 31, it says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. Notice what they're doing, okay? And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. A scarlet robe was the clothes of a king. They stripped him naked to humiliate him, but then mockingly put the scarlet robe on him. And twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and put a reed in his right hand. Crown was the sign of a king and of his authority. The reed in the hand, like a scepter, the sign of his rule. And kneeling before him, they mocked him and said, Hail, king of the Jews. Which was the typical words that you would say to an earthly king, to honor him. They mockingly said this to him. And they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. This reed that represents his, the scepter, his power to rule, they took that and struck him on his head, on the crown of thorns, so that those thorns dug into his skull. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on uh, his own clothes uh, on him and led him away to be crucified. To be crucified. Notice the amazing reversal. Notice the amazing reversal happening here. Here you have a bunch, a battalion of sinful soldiers. And if there was a perfect king, he would have to stand in judgment over them. And with his scepter, with his crown on his head, his right to rule, and his scepter in his hand, and speak judgment over them, and they would have had to be executed. But in the kingdom of God, you have exactly the opposite. 
you have Jesus, the perfect king, with a, mock, a, a, a scarlet robe mock, mockingly put on him. A crown, not of gold, but of thorns, put on his head. A reed put in his hand and then taken from him and used to strike him over his own head. He spat on, he's mocked, he's jeeringly hailed as the king of the Jews, and then he is crucified. The very thing that should have happened to the guys who were doing it to him. Can you see the reversal? I always think of that, that scene um, in, in the first Shrek movie where Lord Farquaad says, you know, was, where Lord Farquaad, he wants to be king. So he's, he wants a, a queen, a princess to marry so he can be a king. So he sends out all of these guys. He has this tournament and all the guys have to fight, you know, so he can get a hero, a champion who can go and rescue his damsel in distress for me, his queen, so that he can marry her and become a king. And he says, some of you may die, but that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. <laughs> and in every earthly kingdom, it works like that. The subjects die for the king so that the king can benefit. But what do you have happening here? You see, Adam and Eve were told to rule. They sinned against God. What was the result? Thorns and thistles. And yet Jesus receives those thorns as a crown on his head. In other words, he receives the curse that resulted from our rule so that we can receive the blessing that results from his rule. He receives the punishment that his subjects deserve so that his subjects can receive the blessing and the life and the acclaim that he deserves. He receives the rejection that his subjects deserve so that his subjects can receive the acceptance that he deserves. Can you see what's happening here? It's exactly the opposite of Lord Farquhar. It's exactly the opposite. Not, some of you may die, but that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. No, I will die, and that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. Not, you will die for me as, my, as your king, as rightly you should, but as your king, I will die for you. I will die for you. Now tell me this. Tell me this. Can you not safely trust a king that loves you like that? Can you not safely trust him? Surely that is a king that you can safely trust. Surely that is a kingdom that you'd want to be part of. Surely that is a kingdom of which you can pray, your kingdom come. Lord, not only do I want to submit to your rule, not only do I want to be part of that kingdom, I want everyone else to be part of that kingdom. Because a king like that is the best king there ever was and ever will be. Thanks for listening to this message from Shafa Johannesburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.